Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're into extra time. Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time. I'm Stephen Hewson. World Rugby suggestion it could ban transgender athletes from playing in the women's game is creating plenty of debate. Well, New Zealand rugby is also copping plenty of flack for its planned revamp of Super Rugby. Well, rugby's proposed plan to ban transgender players from the women's game has created a storm of controversy, with New Zealand rugby suggesting it's loath to accept the policy. World Rugby says the move's about safety, with latest research indicating that a reduction of testosterone does not lead to a proportionate reduction in muscle mass, strength or power and that the risk of injury and performance remains significantly elevated, even if a player takes testosterone-suppressing medication. New Zealand Rugby's Chief Operating Officer is Nikki Nickel, and she indicated domestically, at least, that New Zealand is loathe to implement World Rugby's proposed policy. I think it's important to note for New Zealand we haven't adopted the policy. We're going to review it, and we'll use that as a start point. But World Rugby have encouraged us all to come up with a policy that is appropriate for our market. And so if you think of New Zealand, um, if you think about our communities, um, we like to think they're probably a little um, unique from everyone else, but also the formats of the games that we play, that we offer, are also got to be taken into consideration. We don't have all the answers. I'm not sitting here as an expert in this area um, and could tell you how I balance player welfare with ethical and um, other challenges that we're trying to do because I think the situation is quite complex um, but I'm, I'm really proud that we're having the conversation that we're owning it as part of a rugby community and we're trying to find ways that trans athletes can be involved in our sport because for us you know that is the outcome we're trying to seek. That's New Zealand Rugby's Nikki Nickel. So to discuss what's a highly emotive issue we're joined on the program this week by former Black Fern Lewis Wall, Annie O'Brien of Speak Up for Women New Zealand who are campaigning for sport to be categorised by sex, not gender identity, and regular panellist Hamish Bidwell. Louisa, if we start with you, what, what do you make of World Rugby's proposed policy? Well, World Rugby have essentially uh, become engaged because the International Olympic Committee haven't been able to find, I guess, the, the new normal from their perspective. They issued their first trans guidelines in 2003, uh, and then they were updated in 2015, and to reflect gender identity, because they moved from a requirement to have full gender affirmation surgery uh, to not requiring that, and essentially the threshold of uh, testosterone um, in your blood from, um, well, uh, well, it was 10 uh, nanomoles per, per litre, and I think people have used uh, testosterone as a marker of, masculinity, femininity, male, female, uh, since then. Uh, and they were supposed to issue some updated guidelines. And there's been a big push, uh, from what I've read, to lower that to five nanomoles. And the research that you quoted from Sweden essentially says that uh, testosterone shouldn't be a marker, uh, that if you go through puberty uh, as um, a male, that uh, testosterone and the reduction in testosterone then doesn't lead to 
uh, a complementary uh, reduction in the strength difference between um, men and women. So it's, it's a fault area uh, because the uh, science isn't clear. They couldn't get consensus, which has essentially meant that some codes, such as rugby, uh, have been advised to develop their own uh, protocols. Rugby's essentially saying this is a, a health issue, isn't it? Well, what they're saying is, based on the evidence that they've now seen, uh, it is a health and, and safety issue because obviously sport uh, historically and currently uh, is run on a binary concept. That is, you have men's competitions and women's competitions. And if science can now prove that uh, there is a, a difference between um, a, a man going through his teenage years who then transitions later in life uh, into um, being a woman. So tra- it's not that trans women aren't women, it's more about uh, whether there's um, a difference in performance or performance ability. Uh, and I think what um, the Olympic Committee is saying and, and what World Rugby is saying uh, is because of the collision involved in rugby, uh, they think that there is uh, a health and safety issue. Um, and actually, Nikki didn't say they want to ban uh, trans women from playing rugby. They said that they needed to look at it and find safe ways uh, for trans women to play rugby. And we already have categorisations, the old roller mills, where, you know, um, it has in rugby always been about your weight uh, and making sure that it was comparable. So we weren't allowing those who were, you know, far superior in terms of their weight um, and um, height, being able to engage um, in, in competitive context uh, where they may have already a natural advantage because of who they're playing against. Annie O'Brien, what's, what's your take on, on this World Rugby proposed policy? Um, well, look, Lewis has summarised it quite nicely there. Um, I think uh, World Rugby has done a really um, thorough job. Uh, it's quite groundbreaking that they have dedicated so much resource and uh, time to this issue because, as Lewis has said, it's so fraught and we need to have these conversations because we need to make sure that sport of all kinds, but in this case rugby, is safe for women, fair, and also um, is inclusive for everyone to partake in it. Um, and so I think World Rugby has done um, everyone a bit of a, a service in that they've kicked off the conversation. They've got experts in who've been able to establish um, some more comprehensive science because, as Lewis has said, it has been based solely on testosterone previously and we all know that there is much more different between the bodies of males and females than just testosterone. Um, for example, just larger hearts and larger lungs make a huge difference performance-wise. Um, so basically, I think it's, it's a good start um, for the national unions to now talk about these things. Uh, I know that uh, Rugby New Zealand's got a big job ahead of them because it is a complex area, uh, but I, I have faith that they will um, make sure to prioritise women's safety, I think, is the most important thing because, um, as we know with rugby, especially neck injuries can be... Um, they can be life-threatening, um, and, and Rugby um, New Zealand and all rugby unions have been very conscious in recent years of these kind of injuries, of concussion injuries, and so I know that uh, for them this will be a big issue. I know um, as part of the, the research that they did, they did modelling on, um, on how tackling between um, a male person and a female person um, generates force on the neck as compared to, say, female v. female, male 
female. Um, and it was through that modelling that they were able to establish that 20 to 30% increased risk uh, in serious injury for women if they were to be tackled by a male person. And so I think the question isn't whether males have performance advantage and whether there is a risk. The question everyone needs to answer is, is that risk acceptable? Um, I'm saying no, it's not, and that women should uh, be able to uh, compete in sport safely. Um, there's just too much of a risk there. Um, but that's really the question everyone's got to answer if, if inclusion trumps safety. Nikki Nicole has sort of seemingly suggested that, that New Zealand rugby, though, will not necessarily follow the, the world rugby policy in the sense that they uh, would transgender athletes playing in the, in the women's game. Obviously, they'd have to follow it at an international level. Mm. What, what's your take on that? I would say that um, I think they've still got a lot of work to do in terms of checking out the research themselves. What I would encourage them to do is perhaps look, as I know World Rugby did, at um, not putting a blanket um, policy across all types of rugby. So, for example, in terms of non-contact rugby, um, there's no reason why trans women can't play in mixed um um, mixed teams or competitions um, to ensure that there's inclusion. I think the line that World Rugby gave was inclusion to the point where it's not safe anymore. Um, and so I think if New Zealand Rugby is able to take a look at where that line is, um, that'll be a good place for them to start. I, I would be seriously worried if they were to ignore the research, which is, is pretty clear, um, because for a start they'd be putting women at risk, but also, I think for them, I know for World Rugby at the, at the conference, they had um, lawyers, they had insurance and risk analysis. Um, and, and so in terms of risk to the union, I'd say they'd be looking pretty closely at that um, because when you have that data there, to ignore it would be negligible. Hamish, fraught, fraught issue. Yeah, I'm going to probably let you down a little bit. I know I come in um, all guns blazing on these things and go, oh, this is stink, or this person's an absolute idiot, and this is unacceptable. But I just, if I am going to die in a ditch over something and I am going to be cancelled, as they say these days, it's probably not going to be over this issue. I just don't see how it's equitable. I just think there are there are issues on both sides, and I, I would feel hugely uncomfortable endorsing one or against the other or saying that one person's human rights were more valuable or important than someone else's that's just not i'm not educated enough i don't feel comfortable with that and so yeah i i, I just think people's views on some of these things are often quite extreme and i i think it's good that we're talking about it but it would be good if people could talk about it and also while talking about it listen to what the other side says so that they can actually perhaps get a better understanding rather than saying this is my position and i will state it strongly because i just think this isn't one of those ones where it's, there's a hard and fast position. And so I know you probably want me to say, hey, this is outrageous, but I just, I can't. I really can't. Louisa, most female athletes we've heard from want <coughs> trans women to be treated fairly, but sometimes that comes at the cost to women. So the question is, is that still fair? I think what's fair is that we have a society that accepts um, trans women are women. Uh, I think from a first principles approach, um, you know, we all have the right to be who we are. And obviously, we've, there's been a bit of a metamorphosis in terms of LGBTI uh, identity, um, societal acceptance. Uh, and I think we were at a point of, to be quite frank in this space, is that it should be a case-by-case -case issue. Uh, because if it is about puberty, and obviously... 
uh, people are being diagnosed earlier, have access to hormones and endocrinology and uh, other medical services, then, uh, you know, some of our um, generic considerations in terms of the performance difference can be mitigated um, if someone's transitioned, you know, as a, as a, uh, a, a child. Uh, and so I think um, the anticipation that uh, people are going to uh, abuse the rules and possibly transition so they can get a gold medal, and I'm just putting it out there because obviously at the elite level there have been uh, countries that have used systematic doping uh, to bolster their uh, medal tallies. This isn't, from, from my perspective, the issue. I mean, I think we need to... Uh, support uh, all human beings participating in sport, and that's what the Olympic movement has has been based on, inclusion, uh, no matter who you are. Uh, but we also need it to be fair and we need it to be safe. And so I can see in the future uh, contexts where anyone can play, uh, another context, maybe um, NPC level, for example, or an ability to go to the Olympics where... It's not just a ban, but maybe people do need more intense uh, case-by-case uh, scrutiny and analysis about when they transitioned and those sorts of things, and possibly um, you know, some other markers of um, strength and power so that it is a bit more equitable. But obviously, within the context of, of the Olympic movement, we have the Phelps of the world who are just absolutely uh, phenomenons, but it's based on their natural biology. Now, he's not banned... From competing in swimming, even though some people would say that he's got a competitive advantage, but it's a natural advantage that he was gifted with. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I do think that um, this isn't about banning people. It's just about um, defining the context where people can play safely uh, and us all being supportive of trans women in this instance because it's interesting. There aren't any bans on trans men. They can play immediately. No one is worried about them. But there has been this emphasis on trans women. So, so is it time to end male and female sections and instead put athletes in categories based on factors such as their weight, VO2, max, physiology and so on? So you know, ensuring sport's completely inclusive? Um, no, um, no, I don't. I mean, I think the binary world that we live in is the general world that we live in. And we, we can't get away from the fact there are biological differences between men and women. But there are some people who are born as they are that deserve the right to participate in sport and we need to treat them fairly. Um, and then coupled with all of this, the Casta Semenyas of this world are different again. You know, she lives as a woman, is always identified as a woman, but she obviously uh, was born um, with different sex determinants. And some people challenge the fact that, that she can participate as a woman. Now, that is a bit more complex, but actually, again, if we develop the right framework uh, and have the right testing, why shouldn't she be able to compete as a woman? She lives as a woman. She hasn't had surgery. This isn't a trans issue, um, but it's an issue about some people contesting uh, whether or not she um, has unfair advantage. And that therein lies, uh, I think, um, the situation that we find ourselves in. And it's interesting because in disabled sport. Uh, and our other Olympic sports, you know, they have different categorisations about who can compete where. So it's not as if we don't have a framework to try, to try to develop something that means everybody can play.
I would just caution against um, any kind of conflation between intersex and transgender issues. They're very different issues. Transgender women are not intersex. They are uh, males who are now identifying as women. Uh, So there's very different um, issues at stake there. And uh, deliberately, World Rugby has has made sure that this particular um, policy is around transgender people. Um, In regards to trans men... The, the, the reason why um, there hasn't been such a, um, a noise about them has been because there simply aren't loads of trans men um, knocking on the door of male sports because our physio- uh, physiology is not um, such that we're able to uh, get to elite levels that can compete with males. So um, I would say that that's that's kind of an example of why this is an issue. Um, Trans men, one of the suggestions has been that they'll be able to sign a disclaimer in order to compete in male um, sport because they're putting themselves at risk uh, and that's their choice. But the other way around, where a trans woman is playing in female sport, is then putting the women at risk and they can't consent to that. So that's the difference there. And I would also say that, um, you know, inclusion um, is always the goal. Um, and it, I don't see it as exclusion um, in order to establish categories in sport, which are there for safety and fairness, because we do do it already, as you've discussed. Um, we do have male and female sports. We have um, d- um, for people with disabilities. We also have children. So um, we're not going to allow someone to compete with children if they're going to harm them and it's not going to be fair. Um, so I would say that um, inclusion should always be the goal of sport. Um, so I think that we should be supporting trans women to be able to compete um, in ways that are not going to um, impact the safety and fairness of women's ability to play sport. Because if we're honest, um, the the world of rugby and the world of sport still has a f- quite a long way to go in terms of um, bringing equity to the women's um, sporting world. Uh, so it would be um, really a travesty to allow um, uh, another issue to set it back further in terms of increased risk, which would then put off girls from potentially joining sport um, and, and also the, the issue of fairness, which which always probably is the more contentious one. <laughs> Louisa Wall, Annie O'Brien, thank you much for your time today on Extra Time. New Zealand rugby is copping plenty of flack over its planned super rugby revamp with Australian and South African officials all piling in. The NZR wants to establish a new tournament of eight to ten teams featuring its five Super Rugby teams and a potential side from the Pacific Islands, cutting loose South Africa, Argentina and Japan. Rugby Australia are pushing for their four Super Rugby teams and the Perth-based Western Force to be involved in any future competition. But New South Wales Waratahs chair Roger Davis says the NZR is trying to drive a wedge between Super Rugby teams and the Australian national body by approaching Australian teams directly to join the new competition. South Africa too is unhappy with the NZR's move, with their chief executive, Juri Roo, saying Sanzar has legal agreements in place and the unbundling of super rugby can only be a Sanzar executive decision. Going on to suggest New Zealand rugby could find itself facing legal action. Here's New Zealand rugby CEO Mark Robinson speaking to the media last week when he confirmed the new competition. We are very committed to Sanza. Um The look and, and shape and feel of how this competition uh, maybe um, own or run is, is still to be determined. Um, and, and, and 
The way it connects with Sansa is still to be determined. What discussions have you had with your South African counterparts? Because essentially after 25 years, you're you're moving on from their involvement in, in this competition. Well, they've been across um, you know, all of the dialogue we've had um, to date through Sansa and we've had you know, a number of competition uh, conversations with them, obviously. You know, we, we want to remain close to them and where there's opportunity to to play each other, obviously, um, internationally and, and work together going forward. We remain hugely committed to that to that partnership um, and we're looking at ways you know outside of international rugby that we may be able to do that but the reality is as I said earlier the impact of COVID has been so significant that we've we've had to look at other alternatives uh, and, and a new direction here. It's not COVID that's led to this is it? I mean the review was already underway and the approach was a change needed to happen so laying it at the door of COVID's not quite right is it? Uh, well yes it is. Um, we, we started um, Aratipu with a focus to look at New Zealand uh, professional rugby entities and make them more resilient, you know, uh, highly capitalised, fit for purpose um, businesses within the construct of, um, you know, super rugby going forward. Then partway, obviously, through um, through that process, the, the full ramifications of COVID and the limiting of impacts it was going to have um, became far more apparent and, and obviously more and more work was needed to determine um, future competition models and, and opportunities. How far advanced are your conversations around a Pacifica uh, franchise? Uh, we've got several entities. Um, obviously, uh, Kanaloa, uh, Hawaii has been very, very public in their um, desire to, to be involved um, and there are, there are other parties which have reached out as well. And, and I wouldn't call them advanced, um, you know, if, uh, I'd, I'd call them very um, early conversations at the moment. Hamish, you're going to tread uh, as carefully on this topic? No, probably not. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm glad in the sense that they're having these discussions. I have said that they needed to be reset, that what we were lumbered with was not, um, was not um, popular, was not working. Um, they needed to make a change and they are making attempts to change and that's great. I find the megaphone diplomacy um, embarrassing. I feel um, it's just it just low, it um, hampers everyone's brand. They just look like fools, all barking at each other and uh, making their strategic leaks or getting you know laptop media to sort of um, make points on their behalf. And I just think that's really unbecoming. That they should be better than that. Um, we've known Sanzar was breaking up. The reports emerged in January and February that South Africa wanted to go to Britain, and and I I, I welcome that. I think that would be great. I think we've had enough of this competition. Um, what I'd like to see is something substantive. I've said many times that I am of the view that speculation is just that. I, until something is actually on paper and we've got the competition to talk about, then I'm, I find a lot of this stuff just a little bit worthless. Mm. Um, Although it is on paper in the sense they're saying we want eight to ten teams. Yes, and, yes and, sure, and, that's and fine. But like, our, it's all very well to say we've got a Pacifica team up our sleeve. What have you? Is it a, from a nation? Is it a conglomerate of teams like we had with Tonga, Samoa and Fiji playing together years ago? Like, what is it? I mean... As far as I'm aware, this um, Hawaiian thing is an absolute beat-up. Um, I've got some people who are associated with, with some of the people who are being mentioned um, in conjunction with being owners or supporters or what have you, and it's just not its not as it appears. It's, it really isn't. And so to, 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 to cite that as this potential um, team, I find, is a little bit fanciful. So, um, yeah, I, I, they needed to do something. They needed to um, make changes um, I, I just wish they did it behind closed doors in a more um, becoming fashion. One thing I would like to say is I don't want to hear anything from players. I, I think players have lost sight of their position in this whole thing. They are the hired help. 
And if they don't like it, they can go to Europe where they really are the hired help and they'll be treated as such. But their views on what the competition should look like or how many games they want to play or who should be in it, I don't regard with any importance. They should just basically turn up and go where they're told because they are being paid more money than we can all afford and they should just be grateful to get it. Koru Vakauta of RNZ Pacific. Um, how real is the, the Pacific team? I mean, everyone would say that would be a great inclusion. Yeah. Uh, but... Well, but- it's been people have been clamouring it for it for for years. It's not new, and as Hamish says, this isn't rocket science. The Super Rugby has been a broken model for a while now, uh, so this is no surprise that the changes need to be made. But I'm along, you know, with him. I have some cynicism, scepticism over how far or how close we are to having a Pacifica team involved. Um, we've got Hawaiian authorities um, talking about the Major League Rugby in the US, um, the the kind of law involvement. They're saying uh, they're not as advanced as they make out to be in terms of sponsorship, in terms of um, a home ground in Hawaii, that sort of thing. So the fact that they haven't got that tied up in Hawaii where they're supposedly based, I'm not sure that they're even going to be close to anything in Auckland. And the fact that we're, what are we now, coming up to August and we still have no real confirmation or like, like Hamish says on paper of, of proposals of what's going to happen, we should be far down the track if we're looking at 2021. Um, so this could be 2022 or beyond. But there is this clamouring. Um, there's always been a need to have a, a Pacific involved in some way. Um, you know, there's, there, it's not new, this treatment of, of Pacific rugby, the fact that the, the All Blacks don't go there as often as other teams have. Um, you know, how do we um, involve um, the Pacific rugby players more, or Pacific rugby unions more? But then, of course, you've got to balance it as well with uh, the fact that governance, sadly, is not always a strong thing in the Pacific when it comes to the rugby unions too. Interesting financial model they're talking about too, aren't they? Yeah, well, um, and I understand that. They're talking about the Pacific cultural aspect. And, and when you look at the Pacific cultural aspect, it's about pooling resources. It's about, you know, living as a village, um, you know, bringing up children or whatever it may be in a village concept. You know, if you don't have something, you go to your neighbour, you go to your whanau member and, and you, you help each other. But the fact, can this work in this kind of capitalist um, world or... I'm not so sure if it's sustainable anyway. It's, it's something that we'll have to keep an eye on. Hamish, how do you, how do you see this playing out? Like, like Corey said there, the time frame seems extremely tight. Yeah, well, let's say this was the NRL, for instance. If they were expanding, if they were adding a second Brisbane team, if they were going into Perth, well, they would have had a team, a logo, a CEO, a coach, and several players already by now because that's how you build a new franchise. You don't just go, oh, yeah, we're thinking about this and that, but we don't have any details yet. And it'd be, to say we're advanced in our talks would be premature. Well, then, if you're not advanced in your talks, then why are you leaking it to the media? Why are you mm. suggesting it in the first place? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you've got nothing to tell us, don't tell us anything. So, um, yeah, I just I think they're sort of doing it on the hoof, and it just makes them look a bit sort of amateur. We've also had this... Um with the whole Richard Fale, if we remember Richard Fale coming out, that you know there was this opportunity yep. a, a to be involved with the Warriors and then B to have a, a Hawaii-based team before, and we've had this kind of talk and hype before, and it's just all fallen through. So there is this scepticism in the Pacific; they want things to happen, but you know th- this talk's happened before and nothing's eventuated. So we could be back with, with Super Rugby Aotearoa again, twenty twenty-one. Yeah, but <laughs> I mean, well, I'm, just as I'm, likely the five Australian teams you mentioned and the five New Zealand teams. I think at the end of the day, that's still the most likely model. I don't yeah. know why Australia and New Zealand are barking at each other. They need each other because New Zealand doesn't need their rugby teams because they're rubbish, and that's the that's the problem from our point of view. But they possess the, um, they're a big market. They have money. Um, Australia can't go it alone.
they're, they're dreaming. They, they they need New Zealand. They can they can um, say that they're being bullied or that we're arrogant or this is unacceptable. But at the end of the day, they, they're nothing without New Zealand. So they, I imagine at the end of the day, those five teams will all get into bed from both sides of the Tasman. We'll have a ten team team uh, ten team competition. Yeah, that seems to me the best way forward as well. I'm, I'm sorry to seem like I'm a, a, a Hamish advocate or cheerleader, but yeah, it, it really does seem the way to go. Um, I mean, I'm loving rugby being back, Super Rugby Aotearoa, but it does get a bit, you know, it's the same team week in, week out. Um, it's good to see the players out there, but there needs to be something more to it, you know, something, a carrot, a, a trophy at the end of it, so forth, you know, like a, a tangible actual competition rather than just like, um, you know, neighbourhood games playing out. So it'll be good to have the Australians involved in some way, I think. Korevaka Uta, Hamish Bidwell, thank you very much for your time on Extra Time this week. On behalf of the Extra Time team, I'm Stephen Houston. Bye for now. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.